Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. As always, I'm your host, Bill Words, with Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background on this March 2nd, 2023. We are episode 105. My guest this week is Peter Klepper from Belgium. He's the editor-in-chief of BrusselsReport.eu. We are talking about central bank digital currencies. What do they mean for consumers? What do they mean for the monetary system that we're having? And is it a cryptocurrency? Also in this episode, Brussels wants to get rid of the least sustainable food products and adds a new label to get it done. We'll talk about what that means. Also, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam will reduce the number of passengers. And lastly, also staying in the Netherlands, Regulators are demanding a hard stop to processing passenger data relating to the European uh, Passenger Name Record Directive and the uh, European Court of Justice uh, ruling on that issue. So let's get started. Brussels wants to get rid of the least sustainable food products with a new and upcoming legislation called the Sustainable Food Systems Legislation, known as SFS. I will have an opinion editorial uh, in the US eventually on this topic because it is bad news for importers, but it's also bad news for European producers. Essentially, the system says that um, we have a lot of unsustainable food products, both from an equality perspective and the way that it is produced, but also it's just unhealthy diets and it's bad for the environment. Um, they talk about biodiversity quite a bit. They talk about nutrition levels, um, even though there will be a separate nutrition label, uh, uh, at least in the farm to fork strategy that is, uh, that is planned for the, ag- for the agricultural sector. But SFS will not just label these products, it will try and phase them out. So essentially, the bottom line here is that products that don't adhere to this sustainable uh, um, uh, system, also uh, referred to as the Do No Significant Harm Principle, DNSH, everything has an acronym these days, um, will then essentially be banned. And that will also apply to importers. And of course, that will cause some problems on the uh, World Trade Organization levels because, well, at the same time, we're trying to reduce farmland, synthetic per- fertilizers and pesticides. Um, so we're increasingly reliant on importers, but we're also trying to make the rules how those importers will be allowed uh, to to sell on the European market. As a reminder, the European Economic Area, uh, that means the EU and associated countries, uh, will um, represent 447 million consumers. So that is a very big marketplace, but it doesn't mean that the EU can have its cake and eat it too. So SFS is something to to keep a lookout for. It's one of the new pieces of legislation within the farm to fork strategy on top of many others, including nutritional labeling, the sustainable use of pesticides directive, and a lot of other pieces of legislation which I'm not sure they really can get through until 2024, which is when the next European elections are taking place. Next up, Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, which is the main airport in the Netherlands, has announced that it will reduce its passenger capacity from 500,000 to 460,000. They call it a necessary intermediate step in a, in a response to a cap proposed proposed by the Dutch government, the airport's owners and operator has said that the Dutch government, according to Politico, wants to limit the hub's flights to 440,000 a year for environmental reasons, as well as to cut down on noise pollution. 
But in an opinion, according to Politico, sent to the Dutch cabinet, the international hub said that while it would indeed cut its flights, it's not willing to go below 460,000. We are committed to reducing nuisance and emissions, Royal Schiphol Group said in a statement. Um, of course, this will have significant uh, impact on the on the on the airport. Uh, as you might know, Amsterdam Airport is one of the top ten busiest airports, uh, not just in Europe but actually in the world. It's a significant connecting airport and quite important for the airline Air France (KLM), uh, which uh, which uh, you know the, the national airlines of Air F- uh, of France and the Netherlands had merged a couple of years back. Uh, so this is not just uh, for Dutch people to fly out, but actually for a lot of people to connect uh, intercontinentally. It will actually increase the power of groups such as Lufthansa, uh, which are flying via their hubs, uh, Munich, Frankfurt, Vienna, uh, Zurich. A lot of these airports are under the control of the Lufthansa group and even more airlines might, might join that. So this will just increase consolidation of the airline market, uh, unless the Netherlands can, of course... Um, um, fiend off uh, some of these moves, some of these uh, uh, repercussions by getting other EU member states to do the same. Um, however, I just don't see that happening, uh, especially right now in the economic state that we're in. Uh, also, a few more stats. Um, according to data released by the International Air Transport Association, IATA, passenger traffic recovered from 41.7% in 2019 volumes in 10 10- in 2021 to 68.5% in 2022. They say airline financial performance continues to recover from the massive losses recorded in 2020, and our latest forecast suggests that profitability will return to the industry overall this year. So we'll see how that will develop. Ultimately, I think um, unless passengers have a rail link intercontinentally, I don't think this is a uh, this is a very smart idea. It really doesn't provide a lot of passengers with a with a solution. And yes, while you do have a good high-speed rail connection in France, or even connecting between France, Belgium, uh, and the Netherlands, and even uh, Spain, Italy, and Germany are quite well connected, for a lot of places in Europe, that is not the case. And taxing and regulating those people is unfair unless you provide them with actually a viable alternative. And we're staying in the Netherlands with our last story. Dutch privacy regulator um, uh, Autoriteit Personengegevens, I think I'm pronouncing that completely wrong, um, they said that the Minister of Justice and Security should actually stop processing, stop forcing airlines to process passenger data according to the passenger name record legislation in the European Union. This was legislation enacted in 2016 and it records everything, not just your name and last name and uh, passport or ID number, but actually also records whether you checked the bag, whether you paid by credit or debit card and what card you paid with, where you're flying to, how often you're flying. A lot of these things are recorded. And actually, a European Court of Justice uh, ruling from not too long, from not too long ago uh, said that you can only record this data for uh, purposes of counterterrorism. And unless uh, I'm wrong, I don't think the 447 million citizens of the European Economic Area are all suspected terrorists. So this should only apply to specific cases and should not be across the board. A lot of these rules, a lot of this data was collected for a very long time, years actually. Um, And I remember speaking about this in the past, saying that this is a very bad decision. Fortunately, the 2022 ruling by the ECJ, the EU's top court, 
has corrected the record and now we'll see how other countries will react to it because some countries including Greece, Denmark and Belgium are still holding up and still transferring that data to their ministries um, and airlines are forced to, to process that data and, and, and hand that over. Uh, but I don't think they should. And actually, from my perspective, I think the airlines are now in a good position to take the ruling by the ECJ and say, no, you cannot have that data. We're not legally um, mandated to give that to the ministries. We'll see how that develops. We'll keep a close eye on it. Privacy is very important to consumers and you should not be put under broad surveillance by the government. And then last but not least, we have Peter Klepper from Belgium. He's the editor-in-chief of BrusselsReport.eu. And we talked about central bank digital currencies. Are they cryptocurrencies? What exactly are they and what will they be used for? So Peter gave us an interesting forecast on what he thinks and what the use basis of these digital currencies issued by central banks would be. So take it away. So, Peter, today we're talking about central bank digital currencies. Um, so for those who hear this term for the very first time, it'll be quite interesting for them to know what are central bank digital currencies? Are these cryptocurrencies? In a way, yes. Um, so what happened is uh, Bitcoin uh, was invented. Uh, as I think all the listeners know, the idea of Bitcoin is to offer uh, money completely, um, you know, uh, separate from the state. Um, specifically, Bitcoin has um, this decentralized setup, decentralized in the sense that there is no manager of Bitcoin or something to lock up in case Bitcoin would become uh, too big. That is different for um, other uh, cryptocurrencies, which have some kind of a management. Um, and, and what central bank digital currencies basically are, are cryptocurrencies, but um, not just with some management that may be uh, jailed at one point if the authorities uh, don't like what they're doing, but completely run by the state, um, completely run in specific, uh, specifically by uh, central banks. Uh, now, um, what is the idea uh, behind this? Well, in the words of uh, Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, it is to keep control. She's very open about this. She says, well, there have been eras where central banks uh, no longer, um, you know, had control, where um, there was no state money uh, and where you only had private money. And then she's referring to the free banking era. And according to Lagarde, then this led to crisis. Well, historically, that's, you know, completely inaccurate uh, because um, even proponents of fiat money and a role for government in the provision of money admits that during the free banking area there were less financial crises. And so, just on the on the specifics of uh, ECBC, uh, CBDC. Sorry, the acronyms are always getting to me. Um, uh, just on the, on the specifics of that, um, essentially, the euro now exists um, well both digitally because I mean banks only hold so much as much real money, let's say, as, as much cash money as they as they need for their commercial operations. There's, because of fractional reserve banking, there's a lot more money in the ecosystem that there is cash. Um, but there is cash, so I can hold cash in my, in my wallet. From a practical perspective, what would a, a digital euro add as a, on a logistical perspective? Would this mean I could get 
I don't know, return money digitally back from a, from a merchant, for instance? What, what are the actual use cases that they're trying to sell here? Well, the way I understand it um, is that you would have uh, an account not by a private bank, but directly with uh, the uh, central bank. Uh, and um, yeah, there would no longer be any use uh, as a result of for uh, private banks. So the system what we have now is um, sort of a mixed system. Uh, the government has sort of the monopoly on money, or at least they they uh, enforce uh, government license money as the uh, sole legal tender, the only money that you can use. Huh? If you say I sell you my house for five cows, uh, yes, that's legal to a certain degree. Uh, but if you would scale that, and this has been uh, tried before, uh, then you would get in trouble with uh, legal tender legislation. Also, the courts uh, uh, would not, um, you know, recognize it as money uh, to the same uh, degree. If we would have a cows as our uh, currency, um, a good example of that is. Um, e-gold, uh, which was a sort of uh, um, a system where you could pay each other in gold, um, not physically, but it would be sort of in some kind of a vault. Um, and a few million people used this. And then the, in the United States, this was shut down uh, based on the Patriot Act uh, in the early uh, 2000s, 2005 or something, if I remember well. Uh, anyway, just uh, uh, to, to say that legal tender laws actually, um, you know, are restrictive. And um, with with a central bank uh, digital currency, they would go further than uh, only banning, let's say, non-euros on or non-dollars to be used as currency. They would basically uh, offer this as uh, first only as a, a competitor to what we have. Uh, private banks uh, with with money on bank accounts, and it's of course written in the stars that at one point they would say, "Well, you can only use this um, because we need to have more control for security reasons uh, and uh, and whatnot." Um, I mean, there there is quite a lot of opposition. You know, the this, the public is skeptic. You can see the first campaigns, um, um, you know, uh, against this. People fear that it would lead to some kind of a social credit system. Eh? If, if the, the government directly controls your accounts, they can say, well, Bill, you've been uh, traveling too much already this year. Uh, I'm afraid your carbon limit has been uh, reached. So you'll have to wait until the 1st of January before you can uh, leave your village. Um, so as a result of that, people have been dubbing these uh, CBDCs uh, to be uh, spy coins. Uh, they are really... Um, let's say they, they allow the government to really um, uh, intrude very deeply into your life. If you have no means of payment, then of course uh, there's uh, a lot of freedom that you you lose. So I think it's it's absolutely correct um, to to be very uh, wary. Um, also, actually, within the sort of um, academic establishment, thankfully, there's a lot of people uh, opposing this. Uh, Lex Hoogdoen, who's the uh, Dutch. Um, uh, former advisor to the first president of the of the ECB, Wim Duisenberg, he has questioned um, uh, CBDCs. He has said, I mean, this does not really solve a, a problem. Um, also, uh, the former um, Bank of England governor, uh, Lord King, 
he has warned that the uh, introduction of a CBDC offered, uh, quote-unquote, risks, but no obvious benefits. And he has cautioned against creating something the public didn't need uh, just because it had the, quote-unquote, sexy name of a digital currency. So I think that's very welcome that you have very respected figures also coming out against this. Um, so I think it's it's sort of written in the stars that um, this will be abused at some point. Um, and uh, maybe maybe what we've seen in, in um, an interesting sort of uh, uh, case is uh, in Nigeria. Nigeria has introduced the, the E-Naira, which is sort of the, the Nigerian CBDC, so to speak. Um, and at the same time, the country has drastically re restricted cash. But because the Nigerians, uh, they, they know their government very well, and they're not such uh, an enormous fan of government intervention, so they have refused to uh, use the e-Naira. Only, uh, I think, half a percent of Nigerians have used uh, the thing. Um, and at the same time, the policies of the, the Nigerian authorities to uh, take cash out of circulation in a desperate attempt to push their e-Naira have led to cash shortages. And maybe you've seen also then online, uh, you could see uh, uh, some, some riots, uh, people trying to, to you know, um, uh, to, 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 to um, obtain the, 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 the little cash that was still coming out of cash machines. Um, so, so, at least we see a lot of popular opposition. Uh, we see that people get what the real goal of this is. This is not some kind of a conspiracy uh, with a plan uh, slowly being introduced. It's more like governments stumbling to uh, what is convenient for them. Uh, and, and they're always, uh, what's convenient for them is to have more control. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Christine Lagarde is very transparent about that. Um, so, so uh, yes. Um, what we see also in the United States is uh, that um, a congressman, uh, Tom Emmer, has um, introduced legislation to drastically restrict uh, CBDCs and uh, I think even uh, uh, even ban it. So that's also very welcome that at the you know, to political level that uh, politicians understand the risks of, of this um, and, um, and therefore want to uh, try to prevent the monetary establishment from rolling it out. I mean, it does make sense that, uh, especially in Europe, when everyone is talking about uh, the influx of authoritarian governments and even EU member states themselves that have problems with the rule of law, that you would think that um, these kind of proposals would sort of be understood also as to what they can do with somebody uh, is in power that you don't like as much or who might not necessarily like protests um, who where you can restrict the funding that goes towards. And I mean, a lot of that is also you can already do a lot of that right now with the current banking system. I think it would really extend on that um, if you only had the central bank in charge. Aren't the banks going to be um, the most opposed, though? Because ultimately, this seems to be the biggest threat to to, to their bottom line. I mean, this is, a, this is an entire sector, an entire industry that could eventually disappear. Um, I think, um, I expect so. Um, I must say I haven't seen a lot of opposition coming from the banks. They're sort of waiting, you know, you have to understand they are, also, of course, very uh, dependent on um, being on a, on a good footing with policymakers. Um, but I would expect them to lobby against this. 
um, because indeed, uh, if you think this true, there's no need for banks anymore. Now, uh, people that are, let's say, in favor of hard money and uh, orthodox monetary policies, they typically are quite critical to banks. But I do think that uh, in our system, uh, look, look, we are not in a completely centralized system uh, just yet. You know, uh, the fact that banks are part of the private sector, despite the fact that they're incredibly strongly regulated, that they have more and more staff simply, uh, you know, engaged in compliance. That's all true. They're basically being colonized by the state, but these are still at heart private entities. And um, like one of the one of the reasons why we didn't have uh, mass inflation, despite the fact that central banks were pumping so much liquidity into the system, is also partially thanks to these um, private banks that were still careful. They didn't want to go bankrupt. Um, you know, they 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 did not want to spend money on projects that they would uh, end up um, you know burning themselves on. Uh, so so you know. Uh, pr private banks still play a very important uh, role in our uh, society um, and it, it's very welcome I think that um, you know that we have this this uh, private element um, and you know they, they may um, refuse a loan to people that you know don't deserve a loan to projects that don't deserve uh, to be funded uh, they may facilitate uh, investment for projects that deserve to be funded. They may give liquidity to entities or people that have no liquidity, but that have great ideas. Uh, so so just to say, we have to really think uh, twice, uh, apart from the supervision risks of central bank digital currencies, about the risks that this would destroy this private eco ecosystem of, of banks. And yes, it's true that they only have 2% uh, reserves, which is, of course, very irresponsible. Everybody thinks that, that when they have 100,000 euro in the bank, that they can withdraw this 100,000 euro tomorrow to buy a house or anything. But um, if there's only 2,000, uh, or if, if there's only 2% reserve in the bank, it means that everybody has really only 2,000 euro in the banks. And if everybody would withdraw that money, then the central banks would just print a lot of money to give everybody their 100,000 euro. But of course, um, that would only mean that uh, people receiving this money would effectively only receive uh, one fiftieth of of the sum they think, because the money would have been uh, printed to finance. Uh, you know, so so we have a very dysfunctional system, and and uh, private banks have basically been uh, strongly, uh, let's say, colonized by the state. Um, but uh, we have to think twice about losing them because uh, they still insert some sanity into our monetary system. They have prevented the hyperinflation and all the bad it does. You know, if, the, if there's like, if you say, oh, I really want to destroy society and do as much harm, uh, like I hate society, then yeah, you can throw a nuclear bomb. That's probably going to do something. Um, but uh, if you really want to uh, like... Um, completely undermine the social fabric then you have to uh, you know uh, mess around with with money and uh, undermine the, uh, the 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 stability of uh, of money we've seen that in the 20th centuries and we have seen that before uh, after the french revolution in france um, i mean th this can create uh, th this can really destroy uh, the social fabric of um, 
of, of society and and uh, thanks to private banks um, you know we, we still have uh, uh, some private incentives that uh, that are you know guiding the system and um, if 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 this important lifeblood of society money is completely in the hands of government um, if you think really authoritarian we could have a government that say oh we will ban bitcoin by basically switching off the internet or only allowing this um, uh, this uh, websites uh, that have uh, received the government license you know if if we we go to such a world which is in theory perfectly conceivable um, uh, let's hope that at least in 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 Western Europe and the states and and Eastern Europe, uh, of course as well, uh, that people crave enough for liberty, you know, to 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 stop this. But in theory, it's perfectly conceivable, and and um, it would be very weird if no country on earth, uh, like for example Eritrea, Russia, with, with uh, or North Korea. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure they're at least going to try to implement such a system with 100% of the money controlled by the government. Well, you know that's going to go wrong because the government has its own logic its own incentives and uh yeah the, the damage uh, this uh, will do to the fabric of, of society um you know would be would be enormous so uh, long story short um damaging the the damage of cbdc's is not only supervision but also the fact that it would completely um, um scrap the the private elements of that we still have uh, of our banking system. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for your in-depth analysis. That's as much time as we have for today. Just one last thing. Where can people find you online? Anything you want to promote? Well, of course, uh, um, there's my website, uh, Brussels Report, uh, which is to be found on brusselsreport.eu. Uh, and this is an online magazine uh, covering EU politics uh, from a free market uh, angle. Well, thank you so much, Peter Klepper, for coming on the Consumer Podcast. My pleasure. And that concludes this week's episode of Consumer. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Peter Klepper on Twitter at Peter Klepper and follow Brussels Report as well at Brussels underscore report. And of course, give Consumer Choice Center a follow as well at Consumer Choice C. As always, I'm your host, Bill Wirtz, and I'll see you Thursday. You have to learn.